I bet you didn't know that Guillermo Heredia currently has an 888 OPS in the KBO for the SSG Landers. It's good for fourth in the league overall. He's slashing 332, 396, 492 right now over in the KBO. Just living, living his life. Got that ring with the Braves and he's out of here just crushing in the KBO. Thought I'd give you all just an update on what he's doing with his life. I've received so much feedback that I don't talk enough about Guillermo Heredia. So there you go. That's what he's up to. But hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Chaos Ball podcast. I'm buzzing, buzzing right now. It's Sunday, not five minutes after the Mariners just completed the series mop in Anaheim against the, I've talked about this before, the Los Angeles Angels, uh, which is a lie, the Anaheim Angels, I will say, what a mop. What a mop. And for those of you who are listening who don't know what a mop is, thanks to the Cespedes family barbecue, um, they they kind of introduced the mop to me this year. Not personally, obviously, but a sweep is three games. A mop is four games. And your Seattle baseball Mariners have just mopped the Angels in Anaheim on the road, completed today in extra innings. Tyler Sacedo, two-inning uh, two save because he was like the last man standing in the bullpen. Uh, this simultaneously happened as Paul Sewald got his first save opportunity for the Diamondbacks and promptly blew it. Uh, everything's coming up, Mariners. I, nah, I, I'm kidding. I love Paul Sewald, And I will be talking about Paul Sewald this episode because I did not have an episode last week. I was on vacation and didn't have a podcast last week. It lined up perfectly with the busiest time, potentially, in uh, in the middle of the season for baseball, maybe, you know, that matters for the baseball season. I'd say the all-star game, but that doesn't really matter as much uh, for the outcome of the season as much as uh, the trade deadline. And it was it was a relatively quiet trade deadline, um, but I will be talking about it a little bit. I've got a lot of Mariners stuff to talk about, mainly get a hit on the deadline. Players got back that we got back for Seawold. Talk about just just the great ball that the Seattle Mariners are playing right now. Uh, talk about the Angel series. Talk about Kid Marlowe, maybe. And I've got I've got some numbers. I gotta warn you. I've got a lot of numbers prepared for this episode. So strap in. Strap in. But I'm just gonna start. I'm just gonna start. We're gonna talk about the Angels. We're gonna talk about the Angels series. What a series it was. As we have already gone over. They have been mopped by the Seattle Mariners. And it wasn't an ordinary mopping. It was a very, dare I say it, chaos ball type of mopping. The Mariners have been back to their chaotic, close victories again, which is a is a, well, was a sight for sore eyes, seeing them eke out one-run victories, much like they did all of last season that we've been clamoring for the whole year. Obviously, it would be great if they could just win normal baseball games by, you know, four-plus runs or something and have a, a nice stress-free experience. But no, that is not what being a fan of the Mariners is all about. That's not what this podcast is all about. It's named after Chaos Ball for a reason. It's an interesting way to root for a baseball team. I always root for Chaos, and they have delivered. They have delivered in a big, big way. Uh, things could not be going worse for the Angels right now. They 
they were aggressive buyers at the deadline, which I was very, I'm very much in support of them doing that. Uh, because I think I said it on, on, it was one of, one of the two podcasts I had before my week hiatus that I would not trade Shohei Otani. And the Angels decided not to. They decided to push all of their chips in, all the chips they had, which wasn't much, but they decided to push them in and, and trade for players to make their team better to push for the playoffs with Shohei Otani. And I, that's what they did, and I support it. It was, it was, someone tweeted it, and I wish I could give them credit, but I can't. Um, but it's kind of what we all felt. Or not we all felt. Some people are clowning on them now that they're losing, but obviously they couldn't see that one coming. But they, they, they made the first big trade of the deadline, or leading up to the deadline, the Giolito-Ronaldo Lopez trade, and then they made some other ones. They got CJ Crone and Grichuk, and I think they made, I think they made one or two other trades. But, uh, they traded their number two and three prospects, a couple other prospects, and it's like, listen, those prospects aren't going to change the landscape of Angels baseball in the next five, five years after this. It, they're, they just weren't. Like, as, as good as those players could turn out to be, they could be, they weren't, like, going to tip the scales and, and pioneer this new age of amazing Angels baseball. Uh, they have fundamental issues in that organization. A lot of it stems from their owner. Uh, and I, that's not going to go away when it sh- Shohei Otani leaves. And the, uh, who's like, are we trusting them to develop their prospects? No. I'm so in favor of them doing this. And the tweet I'm talking about, someone just tweeted, what the Angels did was really dumb, but the right thing to do. Trading him would have been given up. Trading him would have been lame, honestly. You push all the chips in. You're never going to have this guy on your team again, probably. Why not just go for it? It's not worked out for them so far, unfortunately, but why not go for it? It was stupid, but it was stupid in a good way. People were like, they're mortgaging their future. They don't have a future after Shohei Otani leaves. They simply do not. Like Kai Bush and that other catcher were not going to push them into the promised land with aging Mike Trout and Anthony Rendon and an anemic pitching staff. Like, that's simply not what was going to happen. And so why not go for it? Uh, and they're, and I respect them for doing that, honestly. Uh, and w- what happens? What do the baseball guards reward them with? 0-6 since the deadline. Zero wins and six losses. Funny enough, the D-backs also. 0-6. 0-6 since the deadline. Uh, very interesting. Oh, what are the Mariners since the deadline? Oh, they're five and one. They're five and one since the deadline, and they they sit two and a half back of the wild card right now. They are scorching. They're eight and two in their last ten, and the Angels are two and eight in their last ten. I just there. This is the run. This is the run we've been talking about, and I'd like to say it's a good reminder. I say this all the time. Winning fixes everything. The Mariners have been playing really good baseball and winning a lot recently. And I'll go into some numbers later. But, like, you know, the pitching had somewhat cooled off since their amazing start. The starters, at least. Offense has picked back up. But some of the stuff is similar. Some of the stuff is similar to when they were losing. But they're still, you know... 
they're winning and and no one's complaining that much. They've still got flaws, but as long as you're winning baseball games, those flaws don't matter to anyone and people will find a lot less nits to pick if you're putting up W's in the column. If you're putting up dubs in the standings, nobody gives a shit what your flaws are. There might be lingering in the back of your mind, but if you keep winning, it doesn't matter. And they have just kept winning. They've simply just kept winning. While other wildcard teams have faltered. There's a little bit of a gap now between them and now the the Yankees are two back of the Mariners. The Red Sox are two and a half back. And the Mariners are just two and a half back of the Toronto Blue Jays for the third wildcard spot. And boy, boy, they're playing good baseball. So the Angels series couldn't have been worse for this Angels team. It was such good fortune for the Mariners and baseball gods smiling down upon them and such terrible, terrible luck slash just playing with the Angels. They win the games by two runs, two runs, one run, and one run. Every game was close. It felt like all like all the games they played down the stretch last year, especially in the fact that they won all of these games. These are the games they've been needing to win the whole year and haven't been and the vibes have flipped the vibes have turned around it started off with an absolute bang on thursday brian Wu has a great start again in anaheim the bullpen floats them on to the late innings shohei otani has to come out with cramps a cramping of his middle finger i believe pitching in that game comes out the next inning socks a dinger his 40th of the year and you're thinking oh man this isn't a great start to the series you go to the top of the ninth. <laughs> it's three one Anaheim. Yeah, I'm calling him. I'm calling him Anaheim. Come, come fight me. You're not in Los Angeles. You're in Anaheim. Ty France walks. New Mariner Dominic Calzone. His name is Calzone. It's not Canzone. It's Calzone. Singles. And Cal Raleigh was on base the whole time. Skipped over that fact. Bases are loaded. Teoscar strikes out swinging. Cade Marlowe comes up. Cade Marlowe gets three fastballs. It's 0-2 count. And this is where the game theory of, of bullpen pitcher versus batter in a late game comes into play. Because I don't know what's going through either of their heads. It's like he gets he gets two fastballs all up in the zone. Swinging strike, swinging strike. And at this point, you're like... If, I, if you're Cade Marlowe, obviously the good thing to do in this situation, you sit on that fastball. And if he throws a breaking ball, you fight it off. Especially with a guy with a dominant fastball like Carlos Estevez. Carlos Estevez, from his perspective, and uh, I don't know who the catcher was, maybe Matt Thice, behind the dish, is like, well, maybe he's expecting a breaking ball low. Or you're just like, listen, he swung through those first two fastballs. This is a rookie. He's been up for two like a week, essentially. Uh, and why not blow another fastball by him middle middle it's the top of the zone it's touching the top of the zone Kerr Marlowe smashes a grand slam off of Carlos Estevez who's been nails this year hadn't blown a save all year Cade Marlowe the rook grand slam 5-3 Andres Munoz closes it out strikes out the side a beautiful victory to start the game on a Thursday night. What a moment for Cade Marlowe and just this team to do that in Anaheim in game one of the series. That set the tone, and I think it just crushed them. 
I think it just crushed them. Because the next game was a little different, just as close, but it was 9-7 to was that final score. Julio had a home run. Um, Ty France connected with a ball, which hadn't been done in quite some time. Doing more, continued his hot streak, and he dingered as well. The Angels kept fighting back. They kept fighting back. And who comes through late in the game? But Eugenio Suarez. RBI streak, man. Eugenio Suarez. He gets a late RBI knock here. We go to the ninth. Cal Raleigh hits a home run from the right side. The ninth inning is a little stressful. The bottom of the ninth is a little stressful. But Matt Brash rides it out and gets the save. Our new battery at the back of the bullpen, Matt Brash and Andres Munoz. Things are going swimmingly. 2-0 in the series. And and this was a great game. High scoring. They outlasted the Angels. The Angels kept coming back. And then the Mariners took the lead late and let the bullpen do their thing. And you go into Saturday's game. You got George Kirby on the mound versus Tyler Anderson, who the ERA is misleading. He's been a lot better in the second half because he's throwing the changeup half the time. You go into this game. And you're feeling good. You've already tied the series at the very least on the road against a divisional opponent you're fighting for the wild card for. Keep the foot on the gas. You get a fantastic start from George Kirby. He goes seven strong, five Ks, one and run, no walks. Obviously, no walks. He's George Kirby. Then who do you hand it off to? Matt Brash and Andres Munoz in the late innings. And they get it done for you again. You win three to two. Again, it's a late RBI to push you in front of two runs. In the ninth, this time it was Ty France who had a, had a decent series here, and thank God for that, because the ninth was stressful. The ninth was stressful. Matt Brash has a beautiful inning. He holds holds the eighth. You pass it off to Andres Munoz in the ninth. Andres Munoz, he has definitely a little closer in him. He's a little wild. He. You know, he'll allow runners. Him and Matt Brash are very similar in that way. They're both going to make you sweat sometimes when they're out there because they're just so nasty for their own good sometimes. That's just how it goes. Luis Ranjifo grounds out. Strikes out Shohei Otani. There's two outs. CJ Crone comes up. He walks. Mike Moustakis comes up. He singles. And then Brandon Drury socks what I thought was the game. I thought it was over. I thought it was over the left field wall. I thought it was going to dink over that stupid, stupid, short little left field wall down the line. And it didn't. Thankfully, what it did do, it missed Cade Marlowe's glove, which is fine. Bounces over the wall for a ground rule double. I yelped. I yelped when I was watching because I was like, once it hit, once it missed the glove, there was a nanosecond where I was like, oh, tie game. It's tied. It's tied. Munoz blew the save. Nope. This is where the baseball gods, when you're playing good baseball, they say, a gift for you. And when you're the angels, they say, to hell with you. I... I can't think of a bigger break I've seen that late in a game. In such a crucial game. A game, it's not a must win, but it's like you're winning, you can't blow the save. It's essentially a must win. Every win is a must win if you're winning in the ninth, uh, August and September, in, in a wild card race such as this. If that's not a ground rule double, that's a tie game. Instead, it's a ground rule double 
and there's men on second and third with two outs, and it's a one-run game in the bottom of the ninth. After that happened, I knew we weren't going to lose that game. That wouldn't happen with the team playing this well. When the team was still... It was it would have been kind of Colton Wong, Grand Slam in the ninth, and then they lose kind of vibes where you get this crazy good break and then lose. Not quite as bad as that, but... Mickey Moniak obviously comes to the dish. They walk him with the base open. You gotta give him the bombs treatment in that scenario to get to Hunter Renfro. Munoz just blows fastballs by Hunter Renfro to close out the game, securing another series victory. And that had to have been the backbreaker of all backbreakers for the Angels. Thursday's game was already brutal. A grand slam in the ninth to lose you that game at home. Saturday's game. Or Friday's game was just a shootout. You lose, you know, what are you going to do? This game, the Drury at the once the ball left Brandon Drury's bat, absolute roller coaster of emotions. It's like, yes, no, yes, no. And then it's over the fence and you don't know what happens. And the guy literally can't, is not allowed to score from third. And then you lose. And then you lose the game by one run. And the series. And you get put six back of the of the playoffs in the wild card, and it's just... Uh, and then you go into today. Today's really close. Chase Silseth struck out 12 guys. Bryce Miller struck out 10. Both were cooking. Offenses looked pretty terrible. You get a late Geno RBI again to put the Mariners ahead in the 10th. And Tyler Salcedo closes the game out for the mop. What a series. What an absolute brutal, brutal brutal week it's been for the Los Angeles Angels and it couldn't have been couldn't have went better for the Mariners again two and a half back of the wild card things things are feeling good things are feeling good oh I just I want to talk more about the series it was just amazing they're just playing they're playing such good baseball right now they are 8-1-1 one, one in their last 10 series and 22-10 and 10 since July 1st. This is the run. All year, me and countless other people supporting this team have been have wanting this elusive run. And I'm doing air quotes. Elusive run that we've been talking about. We've been wanting this run all year. This is it. Like, they've, they kept hovering around 500. We were like, when are they just going to string some wins together, start playing better baseball? Because even when they were winning, it was two steps forward, three steps back, three steps forward, two steps back, one step forward, one step back. It was like they couldn't do anything correct for more than three days, it, it felt like. And they couldn't do anything super wrong for more than three days. It was the purgatory I talked about. We wanted a run. This is it. We're in the run. We're inside of said run. It's it right now. And the playoffs are in sight. It's still an uphill battle. It's going to be an absolute slog these next two months. It would almost be better for all of our mental health if they just lost 10 in a row and were out for for the rest of the year. And you could be like, well, okay, well, we're not making the playoffs now. If they don't make the playoffs after doing this, still a long way to go. But if they hang around, I'm, I, it's going to be heartbreaking. But if they make the playoffs, oh boy. Oh boy. Okay, that was the Angels series. That was the Angels series, and now 
since I didn't get to talk about the deadline, I if I was in town, I would have done a whole deadline show. I would have talked about what other teams did, too, in the context of the Mariners, and I'm only going to do it a little bit because I don't have the time. Uh, but trade deadline. I think Paul Sewald was the man right before I signed off for my vacation on that last podcast. I said I would trade Paul Sewald, and I think the Mariners are going to trade Paul Sewald, something along those lines. It just made sense from a business standpoint and just a baseball standpoint. And I, it was harder for me, even though I expected it to happen and I would have done it, it was harder for me to accept that reality when I got back into the land of internet after being dark all weekend and saw he had, he had been traded. Um, tough, uh, tough to get used to. Paul Seawold endured himself to the, to the fans, to the entire city of Seattle. Uh, absolutely a fan favorite. It felt like, I think partially because he came from the Mets and the Mariners just rebuilt him from the ground up like they've done for a couple guys. But he was like kind of the first where they took this dude who doesn't throw hard, a very unique arm slot and delivery, and made him one of the best relievers in baseball. And he showed so much emotion on the mound. He was such a huge part of breaking the drought will never be forgotten absolute cult hero in Mariners history uh and just what a, what a serviceman for the Seattle Mariners and really sad to see him go uh but I, I'm impressed with the the way he handled it and the way that the fans have been handling it. I think a lot of them recognize this was the right move and to reiterate why it was the right move Paul Seawald uh, right when they traded him this is probably the height of his value at least in his current contract. He has one more year after this, and that just means his value is diminishing as time goes on. Having a fantastic year the whole year, uh, and relievers are super valuable at the deadline for any team that's wanting to make a push. Even, Even league average relievers, league average pitchers, are super valuable at the deadline like we saw. And he was more than that. He was he's been one of the best relievers in the American League the entire year. And it was just time it was the right time to trade him. And they got it. They got a lot for him. I think this was a fantastic trade. I think it was a really, really shrewd piece of business that the Mariners did. I'm surprised they got this much for him. Uh, but it speaks to what Paul Seawold has done. It speaks to how committed the Diamondbacks are to not only trying to win this year, but also next year. And who do they get back? Oh, also, also, before I say that, it also made sense to trade him. You're trading from the biggest strength of the team, which is the bullpen. And in terms of they can they can just Topa a guy. They can Paul Seawald a guy. Paul Seawald is the poster child for the Mariners pitching development, reliever-wise. They can They can kind of just do that. Massive strength. I talked about it a lot. I am so thankful and I have so much faith in the organization from a pitching development standpoint that it lessens the blow of this for sure um, from a baseball on the field product standpoint. But Paul Seold will be missed. But boy, did I enjoy watching him uh, these last couple of years. Absolute joy on the mound and also great dude. Him and his wife. Great people. But who did they get back? They got Josh Rojas. They got Dominic Canzone. And that's the last time I'm going to call him that. He is Mr. Calzone from here on out. And Ryan Bliss, who I had never heard of before this trade. But 
Who is Josh Rojas? Uh, he has been absolutely dreadful at the plate this year. Absolutely awful. Uh, he offers a lot of positional versatility. Second base, third base, you, you can stick him at shortstop. You can stick him in the corner outfield in a pinch if you need. Uh, has a way better track record at the plate than this season. Um, he's been a career hovering around pretty league average guy, but even if he's close to league average, the amount of positions he can play is super valuable. Uh, I'm willing to believe he won't be this bad going forward, but I don't know. I said that about Colton Long before they traded for him, so who knows. I think defensively he's already an upgrade to Colton Long and even Jose Caballero, just veteran status and the fact that he can play three, four, or five positions. Uh, and even if he is this bad at the plate, still, super utility veteran, three more years of control, uh, arbitration, won't be super expensive to, to retain for the next couple of years unless he has like an insane year starting next year and then demands a lot of arbitration, which I don't know if I can see happening, but happy they got him back. They've been needing a guy like this uh, and they can platoon him at second base with Jose Caballero for the rest of the year or, uh, or Dylan Moore uh, is more what I would think they would do. And that's kind of what they've been doing. But that's Josh Rojas. There's not much else to him. It's just the uh, biggest strength is positional versatility. So very good guy to get back. A guy they've kind of been needing. Because um, I know Jose Caballero can play third. But I think they've been a lefty bat that can play second, short, third. Helpful. Helpful. And just he's a veteran. so And seemingly a very good dude. Dominic Canzone. Oh, I called him Canzone, didn't I? Dominic Calzone. I like Mr. Calzone. I think I like him the most out of all these guys. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not no prospect expert, but he's a 40 future value guy according to Fangrass, which seems low to me. Uh, which 40 future value is on like the 20 to 80 scale of scouting they they use. And I I, I use Fangrass. I know MLB and a bunch of other places have. Um, future values and stuff. But according to Fangraphs, he's a 40 future value guy. And that seems low because that just kind of means like a fringe platoon guy, which I guess he could be. Uh, I think maybe I'm a little higher on him than Fangraphs is. Maybe it's because of his name. I don't know. He's hit at every level he's been at. I really like his approach. He's got a good amount of pop in that bat. And I just think he's going to be a solid corner outfielder for a while because he's also a rook. And at worst, like a good fourth outfielder. I think I think worst case, he's he's your backup corner outfielder who maybe you platoon a little bit against right right handed hitters if he can't hit lefty pitching. Um the knocks are, I guess, like strikeouts. Um he hit in uh in Reno. I believe, which is not a knock. He put up over a thousand OPS there, but it's one of the nicest run environments in the world to hit a baseball in. And he was a little old hitting down there, so I think that's also weirdly a knock that scouts use. Like he's hit at every level, but he's old for the level. That's kind of the knocks I heard for Cade Marlowe too. Uh, and look what Cade Marlowe has been doing so far. I don't know. Um, but I think, I think like his floor is, is fourth outfielder with, you know, decent home run potential and solid defense. And his name's, you know, Mr. Calzone. So I like him from this deal quite a bit. And then Ryan Bliss, I dug a little bit about Ryan Bliss, not too much. Um, first of all, he's five, six, which is fun. He's in the Altuve category of second base where, uh, it's, 
it's it's kind of like describing a white uh, a white dude in basketball or football or something like he's scrappy, you know, real gym rat. Um, saying this for a small infielder, he's got a surprising amount of pop. <laughs> I'll say that. I think above average power for second base, or at least like raw power. I don't know game power. He's tore up the minors where he's been at, um, and Fangrass has him as as forty future value as well. Which again, like fringe platoon, not an everyday player, but obviously guys can play out of these future values. That's not, you know, it's not what they're going to be their whole career. Uh, really heavy contact guy in the minors. I think. Uh, not much positional versatility. I think he's just kind of just a second baseman. Uh, he can steal bags, which is nice too. I think he's just a fine prospect who helps the middle infield of the minors, AAA in particular, like somewhere they they are weak right now. It's just like a lot depth in up the middle in the minors, in the upper minors. And maybe he'll become an everyday player in the next year or two. Who knows? I'm so intrigued that he's 5'6". It's fun to root for a really small baseball player. I don't know what it is. But that is the haul for Paul Seawald. A really good haul for a, guy, a reliever, an older reliever with one one and a half years left on his contract. I think they got more than I expected, uh, and I don't know if they could have gotten more than this. I think this was a really good trade to be to be made, uh, and they didn't do anything else in the trade deadline. They didn't trade Teo, and I was in the camp of not trading him for a couple of reasons. Um, they didn't move any prospects for any hitters, and looking at the hitters that moved. It's twofold for me. Looking at the hitters that moved, obviously I wouldn't have wanted to move any high prospects for those hitters. But guys like Tommy Pham and Paul DeYoung, they went for so cheap. Like insanely cheap. Like a very low prospect could have gotten that done. Uh, I'm not saying they should have done it. It's just they went for so cheap. And then DePoto came out and was like, there just wasn't much of a market for hitters. Which there's only not a market for hitters if you don't want there to be a market, Mister Depoto. You're the you're the trade man. If you he's he he used the words like if we went out there with a bag of bag of cash and a bunch of prospects, we still wouldn't have gotten anything. And I I think that's an absolute lie. Uh, if you went out there promising uh, one of your one or two of your top ten prospects right now, I think someone would have given up a hitter. Uh, of better caliber than what they got. I think that's just absolute horseshit that he's feeding to the fans. Uh, I, I'm still, I still think they, I they think they had a good deadline though. I think this is a good deadline. I wouldn't have wanted to trade any of the blue chip prospects that they currently have. Uh, if it really was going to be that hard to get a top of the line hitter, it would have had to be for like one of the Cardinals with a lot of team control and a guy who's at least been above or slightly above or just about league average his whole career so far like one of those cardinals guys i don't know what other hitters would have been available it was pretty light market for that so overall happy with the trade deadline because all those guys have team control for a while which i don't care as much about um because i don't run the business but i think it addressed some team needs that they that they needed in a good way and they only gave up Paul Seawald, but she, you know, stalwart of the bullpen, but they can, I think they can replace him. Or have we already seen since we traded him that he's not replaceable in our hearts, but he's replaceable in the field uh, with the Mariners pitching lab stuff that they do. So it's interesting the, 
the Angels went all in their own sixes since the deadline. I can't believe that. I truthfully can't believe that. Uh, other teams, what they did, I, I don't I don't care for uh, Verlander being back on the Astros one bit. I really don't care for it at all. Uh, pretty, pretty mad that that happened. Essentially, Steve Cohen financed Justin Verlander back to the Astros without the Astros having to do anything besides give up. You know, they give a prospect and all that. They got Graveman back in the deal, but that prospect doesn't mean anything to a team that's trying to win the World Series right now again. And they're one of the favorites again. We thought they had us in the first half. We were like, oh, maybe they're done. Nope. Nope. I never wavered on my fear of the Astros, and neither should you, because they're now one of the favorites. Maybe the favorite to come out of the American League. It's them or the Rays, probably, is the current favorite to come out of the AL. And that's pretty frightening. I don't care for it. Uh, they, the Rangers did a couple moves, but the biggest one, I came back and saw Max Scherzer was on the Rangers and I, oh, also makes me mad. So gross that that's allowed to happen. They also have Jordan Montgomery. The Rangers just have all of the players right now. They have every player. And, uh, those were good trades for that team to, to make. I will give it up. Good business. Taking on some money. It's crazy. The Mets blew it up. I, <laughs> I think it was the right thing to do. And I think clowning on Cohen isn't quite a clown like you think it is. It's like, oh, he spent all this money and they didn't win anything this year. It's like, yeah, I mean, they were in the position where if they were going to win anything, they were going to have to spend a lot of money. And spending money on some decrepit old players didn't work out. And instead of letting them play it out and even running it back next year, they got a lot of good prospects. They got a lot of good, solid prospects back in the deal and that's why free agency can work. That's another way free agency can work. If you, these 10-year deals and all that, obviously way harder to trade. But the deals they did, they spent a lot of money, but not super duper long term. And then they trade a lot of these these guys when the team isn't playing well for prospects. So your investment didn't pay off for that player, but it paid off in a way for prospects for the future. Not obviously what they wanted to do, but it was the right thing for them to do in this current moment at the trade deadline was to trade those guys away for sure and not try to run it back with Scherzer and Verlander next year. They did the right thing. Like, clown on Cohen all you want, but it's not going to prevent him from spending money and he'll spend money and if they're bad again, then he'll trade again. Like, it, it's just, that's, that's how it's going to go. That's how free agency can work for you. But that's I don't want I don't want to talk about anything else. There's there's numbers I have to tell you guys. So I just want to touch on the two big pitchers that came to the AOS that I simply do not care for. Uh, both are in Texas now. I really don't like it. I'm really not a fan. And and yeah, like it worked out perfectly for the Astros and Verlander. Verlander wanted 40 a year. He wanted what Scherzer got. The Astros were like, mm, we're good, and. They're like, okay, go vacation in New York for four months and then come back. And so we don't have to give you that whole contract. And look what happened. It worked out perfectly. God, the freaking Astros. But okay, let's talk about the Mariners. Let's throw some stats at your head. Some stats right at your dome. Playing great ball, like I said. 8-1-1 in their last 10 series. 22-10 since July 1st. They've been one of the best teams in baseball since July 1st. In that span, 
since July 1st. And these stats do not include today's game, by the way. I had to do this before the game to get these stats in order, and it would have been a lot to wait for these stats to come in and do this uh, tomorrow. But these stats don't include today's game. But the starters, since July 1st, they rank 6th overall, and this is the entire league, in ERA, 4th in K-walk percentage, and 11th in both FIP and XFIP, fielding independent pitching, for those of you if you if you're listening to this podcast, you know what that is. Uh, and the relievers. This is where it gets tasty. Since July first, the Seattle Mariners relief pitching is first in ERA. They are first in K minus walk percentage. They are first in FIP. They are second in XFIP. And let me throw this one at you: first in Sierra. And I don't know if I've talked about Sierra on this podcast, but boy, I'm a fan of Sierra. And that's because I don't touch grass and I'm a little baseball gremlin. Uh, First in Sierra, and essentially what Sierra is, it's skill interactive ERA. So it's another statistic like FIP and XFIP. Uh, It's a little bit more predictive than XFIP, but it's similar to both of those in that it attempts to explain how good a pitcher is at the stuff he can only really control um, to a certain and, and set on the scale of ERA. So ERA is, is imperfect. It's still a good metric, but it's imperfect because it does rely on other factors like your fielding. And earned runs are not all equal when you have bad fielders behind you or when you have good fielders behind you. But it also matters the type of ball that you're giving up in play. And so... Sierra takes balls in play in account way more than FIP and XFIP. FIP and XFIP are a lot heavy on almost entirely what the pitcher can control in his own right. So a lot of strikeouts, walks, you know, home runs. Sierra takes balls in play in totality a lot more into account and more of like the type of ball in play. So like ground ball, fly ball, like types of contact and whatnot because... You know, fly balls go for outs more often than ground balls do, uh, but obviously fly balls can translate into home runs more than ground balls <laughs> do. Um, and the FIPS generally ignore balls in play, like for the most part, they ignore balls in play. I love Sierra for, I didn't bring up Sierra for the starters, but I love Sierra for relievers. Sierra is good for starters too. I just think you can use other stats that are also just as good. I love Sierra for relievers in particular because. It evaluates them against their raw ERA stat better because relievers' ERAs fluctuate wildly sometimes because they throw such little volume of innings. Like, they compile such little volume over the year compared to starters that an ERA can differ wildly from their FIP or Sierra. And Matt Brash is a perfect perfect representation of Sierra and and funny enough Gabe Spire as well um but as we know Matt Brash the entire year his ERA has been slowly coming down but it started out pretty high but it's still higher than a lot of people would like but it's it's down to 3.21 now it was in the fours for quite a long time but his ERA is his raw ERA it's 3.21 you look at his FIP it's 1.76. So it's and for that reason, it's because he strikes out so many dudes. So 
obviously his FIP's going to be way lower than his ERA if he strikes out so many guys that the stuff in his control he does super well. And then he gives up some balls in play and some harder batted balls, and he's gotten a little unlucky as well. And he, he got a lot of inherited runners and not clean innings at the, in the first half of the year, and that definitely inflated his ERA. And then you look at his Sierra, and his Sierra is right in the middle. It's 2.54. And so that tells me he's been an elite reliever this year by the underlying numbers because his stuff is so good that he's going to strike out so many dudes. So the stuff in his control is amazing. And then he's gotten a little unlucky with balls in play, but he's also given up some hard contact here and there, and that leads to essentially a 2.54 ERA or Sierra, like I am reading it here, which means those batted balls, while they are batted balls in play and not strikeouts, he's still inducing a lot of soft contact, probably weak, weak grounders, you know, fly balls that again translate more to outs, and so on and so forth. Go read more about these stats if you don't want to hear me try to explain them. I can explain them kind of well, but not as well as, like, go to Fangraph's glossary and just read about them. But I like Sierra. Skill Interactive ERA. I love it for relievers. And then you look at Gabe Spire. 3.62 ERA, 2.73 FIP, and 2.44 Sierra. Sierra is even lower than his FIP, which means he's doing even better because all the contact he's inducing is probably real soft, because he's been an absolutely awesome reliever this year. That is Sierra. And since July 1st, they are first in it. Like, they are in FIP, K-Minus Walk, and ERA. I'm sure they're first in a lot of other metrics, the bullpen, but um, those are the only ones I want to touch on. Those are my most important. It's crazy how good that bullpen's been all year, but especially since July 1st. Best in baseball. While the the staff's cooling off is largely due to those rookies at the back of the bullpen a little bit. A little bit. They're st- they've still been top 10 rotation in baseball in that time. And, you know, top 5 pitching staff as a whole with new factor in that bullpen. So, the run since July 1st. The run they've been on. The pitching hasn't taken a significant step back. They've continued to be great at pitching. Like, they have been all year. So the pitching's been very good. The offense is why the run has been going on. They've really picked it up, showing that, like, truthfully, like a lot of us have been saying, a lot of these guys had been underperforming. And we were just kind of hoping, and the front office and the coaching staff, it's like, it's baseball. Guys underperform, and you know these guys are better than what you see on the field. Sometimes it just lasts for a full season, and you never get a run like this where the offense turns it on. And sometimes that's how it be. But that's not how... This season is gone. Here's some stats since July 1st of what the offense has done. They're 7th in WRC+. They're ninth in WOBA, which is weighted on base average. They're ninth in OBP. They're 10th in slugging. 11th in stolen bases as well. So they've been right around top 10, a little bit in the top 10 team offensively, by those metrics since July 1st. Couple that with pitching, bada-bing, bada-boom, 22-10 and 10 since July 1st. That's how it goes. Funny enough, what I talked about earlier, that winning fixes everything, they're not striking out less. They're, t- they're still second to last in K percentage at 27.5% as a team. Funny enough, the Angels are the only team behind them at 27.6%. And as after today's game, which both teams K'd, 
like almost 30 times. So it's going to, both of those are going to go up. But look, strikeouts, they matter for sure. And early on in the offensive struggles, people were bringing up like, oh, they got four guys in the top 10 strikeouts in the league. And yes, that's not great, but it matters what happens when you hit the ball the other 70, 75% of the time you don't get a strikeout. That is where you can still create a tremendous amount of value. Julio hasn't really struck out that much more than last year. It's just he was he was doing a lot more last year when he wasn't striking out than he is this year. It matters the type of contact. It matters how much you walk. It matters you put the ball in the gap. It matters you put the ball over the fence. It matters situational hitting. Like, I haven't seen many people complain that much about the strikeouts because they've been winning and in reality the strikeouts haven't been going down too much they're just hitting the ball better when they hit the ball which is why I'm fine with Julio striking out 25-26% of the time because his hard hit rate is still top 20 in the entire MLB and I'm fine with it like Eugenio, Teo, Julio, Cal Raleigh all of these guys this year are top 30 or 40 in, in hard hit rate or barrel percentage this season and also strike out a lot. And that's just how it goes. And it goes to show you can be a very successful baseball team and also strike out a lot. You know, it. you can. <laughs> baseball is a game of failure. And if you were p- making less outs when you put the ball in play, then you can live with a higher strikeout rate. It's fine. Uh, but those are some team stats of why this team has been cooking. And then some individual stats I pulled up, just just looking. And these have definitely gone up after the day, for J.P. Crawford in particular. But individual WRC Plus rankings since July 1st, over the same span. And I narrowed it down to AL, the American League. J.P. Crawford, 8th over that span in the American League with 171 WRC Plus. And it definitely went up today. He had a leadoff dinger today. He had that. He has that walk streak that I think was broken, but he has the walk streak where he walked in like 10. He had a walk in 10 straight games or something like that. I mean, what a season it's been for J.P. Crawford. Send him to driveline and look what happens. Send the entire damn team to driveline. I don't care what it takes. Send Julio there. Look what it's done for him. He's walking a tremendous amount. He is striking out less. Or not less. He's striking out more than last year, but walking more than last year. Hitting the ball harder than last year. He has 128 WRC plus on the season. And like I said, 171 WRC plus, good for eighth in the American League since July 1st. Eugenio Suarez. He has 143 WRC plus since in that same span. That's good for 20th. In the American League. Julio, 140. Good for 23rd in the American League. And rounding it out with Cal Raleigh, 134 in that span. Good for 26th in the American League. And then there's a little bit of a gap. Because, you know, Ty France, Tail, those type of guys haven't quite been cooking as much. And, like, other guys who have been hitting well haven't played enough games. Like Dylan Moore, uh, Tom Murphy. And then this dude, Cade Marlowe. This dude, Cade Marlowe, has come up. Cade Marlowe, since debuting... Again, not including today, in 38 plate appearances, slashing 313, 421, 625. If you can't do the quick maths in your head, that's a 1046 OPS. 
with six walks and six Ks, two home runs, and that includes one ninth inning go-ahead grand slam in Anaheim. So impressed with what he's done uh, at every plate appearance this year. I think when he got called up, I was I was cautiously optimistic because he's he's hit in every level of the minors. He's one of those guys who's not a highly touted prospect. He was on the span of bananas five years ago. Uh, the Mariners took him in the late rounds for like five thousand signing bonus, and he's just diligently worked his way and worked his ass off up to the majors, and it's paying off. And I love those type of guys that just work hard. And every plate appearance, it's it's he's calm. He's he sits back on the breaking stuff. He sits on fastballs. He fights pitches off. He just clearly has a good head on his shoulders and knows what he's doing in the box. And it's been awesome to see. I think when he came up, I said at the very least he's going to be able to play outfield and steal bags. And he's far exceeded my expectations so far. So that's been awesome. And then some more individual stats. I'm not done. I got more numbers. Julio Rodriguez. He sits right now 15th in the league in hard hit rate. He's been hitting the ball hard all year. He hasn't really stopped hitting the ball hard. The balls in play are of greater quality than they were earlier in the year. He had an 825 OPS in July in 25 games. And then OPS by month this season, so March and April, 743. In May, 755. In June, his OPS plummeted. He had a 621 OPS in June. His slugging tanked 100 points to like 330 in that month. Pretty pretty dreadful. July, as I said, 825 OPS. And then so far in August, he has a 1,010 OPS in August. Been raking. Been really good to see. Way better approach. Hitting the ball better to the pole side. And just overall being a great dude. Cal Raleigh. He had an 838 OPS in July in 21 games. He's been hitting the ball really hard when he makes contact. Ty France, second in the league in in, uh, grounded into the double play with 19, only behind Carlos Correa with 20. I just wanted to say that. That's not a positive stat. I might have to have a tough conversation about Ty France in the offseason, but I'll wait. Gino, he had that like 10-11 game RBI streak he went on, breaking a team record. Crazy. Crazy. Uh, timely RBIs, been hitting the ball very well. He, he broke that record that was set by Edgar. It's been awesome to see it. Another go ahead RBI tonight. J.P. Crawford, he drew a walk in 10 straight games, tying a team record. Said earlier, he had 171 WRC plus in this run they've been on since July 1st. He had a 996 OPS in July with a absolutely dumb 17 walks and 22 Ks in an entire month of July. And in July, he slashed 340, 443, 553. Absolutely fantastic year. And he had an ab- one of the sexier glove flips I've ever seen the other day to help Matt Brash out a little bit. To, to lower Matt Brash's ERA, maybe his Sierra went up because of a hard-hit ball, you know what I'm saying? But absolutely beautiful glove flip, you know what I'm talking about. I'm going to get out of here soon, I promise. I have a couple more stats. I have a couple more. Both had great Julys. But they didn't play as many games as the other guys, but they've been hot. Tom Murphy, his catching has left a little bit to be desired this year, but what a month he had in July. 1,090 OPS in July. And then Dylan Moore. Listen, he clearly needed more time to come back from his injury. I was calling for him to be demoted because I was tired of it. 
uh, and I was upset at how the team was playing. And I appreciate him turning it around, and I'm glad he made me eat my words. He has a, he had a 1,077 OPS in July playing, I think, like 12 games, and Tom Murphy, I think, played 13. And both of them had like a 715 slugging that month. Awesome. Awesome to see. You need guys like that to step up. And those are all the stats. Those are all the stats. The boys have just been buzzing. What an absolute pleasure it was this weekend. And I will sign off with a little schedule update and playoff odds. So right now, as my website is loading, uh, they have an off day when this is coming out on Monday the 7th. They play the Padres for two games in Seattle. And then the Orioles come to town. That's going to be a huge series. On Felix Hernandez weekend, the Orioles come to town. That is a huge series. The Orioles have been playing insanely good baseball recently. That was going to be a test. And I'm excited about it. Uh, let's just let's let's sweep the two game series against the Padres and then go into the Orioles series buzzing. Because then the schedule, and I talked about this last month, the schedule at the end of this month gets pretty light. They can really string together a lot of wins and a lot more series wins this this month. Because they play the Padres, the Orioles, and then they get the Royals, Astros, and White Sox in a long road trip, and then come back home for Royals and Athletics to round out the month. And that is a lot of winnable baseball games against teams that are completely out of the race. The Royals have been playing a lot better baseball recently, but I, you know, they're still not a great baseball team. But that is a schedule update going into this week. And then playoff odds. They've skyrocketed. The Mariners' playoff odds have skyrocketed to 25.5%. Oh, oh, and you may ask, the Angels' playoff percentage right now, according to Fangraphs, the Angels' playoffs percentage is 2.2% to make the playoffs. That is, oh man, that's real bad. Oh, the Mariners. The Mariners went up. I just refreshed the page. 27.9% now to make the playoffs. So, still, it's a good percentage to be at, but a lot of work to do. But, boy, have they been playing better. It's been more chaotic in a good way. A really refreshing series to mop the Angels uh, and... and just looking at these odds, the Astros have a 10% chance to win the World Series. Ugh. In the American League, that's only behind the Rays at 11.3. And in the broader scope of MLB, the Braves have a 25.7% chance to win the World Series, which is crazy. The Dodgers have a 13.2. And so that makes, according to Fangraphs, the Astros are the fourth betting odds favorite to win the World Series, especially after playing well and getting Justin Verlander back. Makes me sick, if you ask me. Makes me absolutely sick. Uh, but I'll focus on what the Mariners are doing. And then when that Astros series comes up, oh boy, that's going to be a good one. But thanks for listening this far. A little bit of a longer show, keeping it under an hour though. Had a lot to cover. Appreciate y'all listening this far if you do. Of course, if you want, don't have to, you know. I'm not going to push this on you. I will just, you know, send out for you to get whacked if you don't rate and review and or tell your friends about the podcast and or write me an email with a stupid wacky question on it. Do whatever you want. Either way, if you're listening right now at the end of this show, I appreciate you. So thank you. Have a good rest of your week. And of course, go Mariners.